for the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Click that bell for continued notifications. The Doctrine of Divine Simplicity from the Confession, 1689, Chapter 2, Article 1. There is obviously controversy surrounding the doctrine of divine simplicity. It's it's relatively recent controversy. Even the you know accidental differences that you find in the doctrine of divine simplicity earlier on in history, and I'm talking four or five hundred years ago, you're not seeing things that differ to the extent that men want to now differ from the sum and substance of the confession, or or at least it seems. And I think one of the helpful things that, one of the helpful questions that we can ask ourselves regarding the confession, and this really goes for any document. Uh, this is even a, a question that you would ask in the midst of biblical interpretation. And that is the question, what do these words mean? Um, and when you're looking at a document like the the confession, the the important consideration is what were the meaning, uh, what were the meanings of those terms that are perhaps uh, somewhat archaic to us now? What were the meanings of those terms? when they were being used, uh, when they were employed in the framing of the confession, and what were some of the major uh, bodies of literature, um, definitive works that were perhaps conditioning the understanding of the 17th century mind as to the meaning of those, of those terms. Um, and so when we come to the confession, and I really want to talk about two things in this video. I want to talk about the doctrine of divine simplicity, but also the doctrine of divine simplicity as it relates to God being pure act or actus purus, which has been denied as of recent. Um, but before we do that, I think it would be good to read the relevant sections from the confession, which again uh, comes to us from chapter two, articles one and two. I'm just going to read portions of both of those paragraphs beginning at the very start of Article 1 or Paragraph 1 of Chapter 2 of the 1689, we read, The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, and so on. And then I'll also read uh, from the second paragraph, again, beginning at the very start. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in any, need of, uh, in, any, in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. So when we look at terms like we've seen here in the first paragraph that I read from, particularly the phrase without body, parts, or passions, we could do one of two things. Let's assume we're coming to the confession for the first time. We've never read it before. 
and we're really left with two options. We're left with, and, and again, we have no idea what these words mean, right? We, we are, we're left with two options. Number one, we could assume a meaning and assign that assumed meaning to those terms. Or we could say, I have no idea what those mean, what those words mean. Let's go and try to find out what they mean. Um, now, if, if, we, if, we, if we just read through it and we say, well, these words seem fit and proper to the, the essence of God. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we will confess them, and, but we have no idea what, what they actually mean. Then we're, we're bound to load them with some kind of meaning. Uh, meaning that is assumed, meaning that is developed out of ignorance, and so on. Whereas if we ask the question, you know, assuming that we don't know what those what those words mean, and we ask the question, where can we go and find where those where 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 those words are more thoroughly defined or more contextualized? That would that would draw us into a an examination and observation of the contextualizing literature for the confessions. Um, and one of the major contextualizing documents for uh, the 1689 is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's been said before, I think, by Dr. James Renahan that, you know, if and, and uh, he wrote something to the effect of this in Toolkit for Confessions, um, which is a small little helpful book. If you can find it, um, by all means, get it and, and devour it. it. It'll take maybe two hours to read the whole thing. And one of the things he says in there is to this effect, you know, when, when uh, the editors of the Second London Confession were, uh, were drafting uh, the confession, uh, very little of the confession in terms of, uh, of content, the amount of content, uh, very little in relation to the amount of content is actually original. Um, and you know, of course, we'd want to argue that it's it's not original in the most absolute sense, and that it didn't arise uh, with the framing of this document. But um, very little is is a deviation uh, from confessional documents that had been drafted prior to this point. And uh, one of those documents that were very influential in terms of what the uh, the Second London says is the Westminster Confession of Faith, along with the Savoy Declaration. And the Westminster Confession of Faith obviously comes from uh, comes out of the the furnace of the Westminster Assembly uh, that convened for about a decade, I believe, in total. And one of the men in that assembly was John Arrowsmith. So when we ask the question, okay, what is meant by these words? What would have what would have our particular Baptist ancestors understood by those words? And it would have been nothing less than and nothing different than what would have been understood by uh, those um, Westminster uh, brethren who drafted the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, this, this would have been uh, an area of continuity between these two confessional documents, uh, though there are important differences along the way, baptism, ecclesiology, and so on. This doctrine of God would have been identical. And so uh, when we get to the Westminster Confession, there's quite a bit of, uh, of literature that helps us to contextualize what the Westminster, because Westminster is, is, is rather identical here in, in chapter 2, article 1. And, and we're not left with really any shortage of information regarding what these terms would have meant. We'll turn to one example, and again, this is one example out of many, uh, this isn't exhaustive, but it's to get you thinking about 
how we can learn what these words meant in their historical setting. And the work I would like to take you to is the Armilla Catechetica by, uh, by um, John Aerosmith. Again, John Aerosmith was uh, a member of the Westminster Assembly. And he writes uh, this work, much of which is very helpful for understanding the thought process of the assembly and, of course, the language that went into the confessions. He says this, For whereas we are not able by, one, by any one of our finite understandings to comprehend that infinite essence, and he's talking about the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility, we're not able to comprehend the infinite essence of God, and then he goes on, which is itself one simple act, but comprehensive of all perfections. Holy Scripture, condescending to our weakness, alloweth us to take up, as it were, in several parcels, what we cannot compass at once. And in contemplating the attributes to conceive some under the notion of divine properties, incommunicable to creatures, such as our immensity, independency, eternity, simplicity, self-sufficiency, all-sufficiency, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, others under that of divine faculties, which are understanding, will, and memory ascribed to God. It gives us leave to look at some as divine affections, such as are his, or such are his love, hatred, anger, grief, and delight, at others as divine virtues, such are his mercy, justice, patience, faithfulness, holiness, wisdom, etc., and at others some as and at others some as divine excellencies resulting out of all the former such are majesty blessedness and glory so right here in this excerpt he uses this term uh and and he's this is how he's 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 speaking of the divine essence he says it is one simple act now we're probably familiar with the term simple uh, the word simple just means not composed. It is one. There isn't anything in this essence that is not itself this essence. All that is in God is God. That's what the word simple here is, intend, is intended to communicate. But then he, then he affixes this word act, such that he calls the divine essence simple act. Now, what does that word act mean? Well, in the 17th century, it had a very uh, philosophical and technical meaning. And uh, for something to be in act mean or meant for it to be actual. That is, it is something that is actually, uh, 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 it is something that is in actual, maybe more technically, it is something that is actual in being, right? It's something that is. Um, and what Aerosmith is here saying is that God is, one simple is. He is all that he is. Um, it's the similar phraseology that's found in Exodus 3.14 at the burning bush where God says, I am that I am. And the idea here is that all that God is, is God. And, um, and, and that is, of course, uh, that, is, that is characterized by terminology like simple act or simple essence. Um, I will read uh, what... Uh, Richard Muller has for us in his uh, dictionary of Latin and Greek terms. It's a, a very valuable, uh, very valuable dictionary. If you do not have it, then uh, you should buy it and make sure you get the second edition. He writes this uh, for the term actus. 
says that synonyms are act, actualization, actuality, or reality. And he says, according to the Aristotelian ontology at the root of scholastic language concerning being, actus, or actuality, designates that which exists or that which is actualized as distinct from potentia, or potential. That which can exist or has potential for existence. Actus, he says, is sometimes used as a synonym of actio, indicating activity or action, but its primary philosophical and, and theological usage references the actual, actuality, actualization, or reality of a being or thing. The scholastics use the concept of actus or actualization to describe that which is real, existent, perfect, complete, including a perfect or complete action or operation, thus, as synonymous usages, actuality in act, to have act or actuality, and actual being. And then he says, potentia, or potential by contrast, refers to the possible, to essence, as distinct from existence, to the imperfect and the incomplete, and therefore to the faculty that can perform an action or operation. Thus, the intellectus, as a faculty, is in potentia, in a condition of potency capable of knowing, while the intellectus, in its knowing of an object, actually apprehending an object, is in a condition or state of actualization. It is actual, so that the knowing or understanding can be called an actus intellectus, an actualization or perfecting operation of the intellect. Because that was an example drawn from the intellect of man as to what he's getting at with uh, actuality or actus or act. And when we say God is pure act, or when we say that God is simple act, as, as John Aerosmith does here in this document, he means that there is no potentia or potential in God for God to be other than he is. So, uh, so when the when the when the reformers and the post reformed Orthodox said that God is one simple act, or that He has a simple essence, or that He is pure act, what they mean is that there is no potential in God for God to be other than God, or there is no potential in God for God to be any other way than He is. Um, now, I'll read one more thing from Aerosmith, and then we'll we'll move on from there. We'll go back to the confessional literature. He says, uh, so as to he says, the attributes of God, however diversified in our conceptions, as hath been said, are identified with his essence, which is but one, though to us they appear to be different each from another, and all from it. As the vast ocean, though but one, receiveth diverse names from the several shores it washeth upon, so however justice, mercy, power, and the rest be several names suited to different operations, yet God is but one simple act, again there's that word, under those various denominations that are conceptual, he says. Lest we should therefore apprehend them to be such qualities as our virtues are, really distinguishable, yea, inseparable from our being, as appeared when the first man fell from his holiness, yet continued a man still, Scripture doth sometimes predicate them of God in the abstract, as when Christ is styled wisdom, when it is said God is love and the Spirit is truth. Men may be called loving, wise, and true. God is love, wisdom, and truth itself. The apostle telleth us that if God swear, he doth it by himself and no other. Yet we find him in the Psalms swearing by his holiness. Whence it followeth that his holiness is himself. Christ is usually said to sit at the right hand of God, but in one place it is expressed by sitting on the right hand of power. Therefore God is power, as well as love. There is the same reason of all his attributes. 
So the divine essence and the attributes of God are really one and the same thing. Anything that we enumerate conceptually uh, and denominationally concerning the attributes of God, his power, his goodness, and so on, uh, we're speaking of the one divine essence, and we're speaking of the one divine essence in analogical creaturely terms. That's what Aerosmith's getting at there. So what's important to understand here, and, and what I'm driving at, is that God is simple, and he is simple act. That is to say that because he's simple, he's not a mixture or composition of act and potency. He doesn't have potential to be other than he is. Now, this brings me back to the confessional language, particularly in chapter 2, article 2, God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. Now, a book was recently published, and when I say recently, I mean 2021, September time frame, I think somewhere around there, uh, by Jeffrey Johnson. I reviewed the book heavily. I reviewed it in three, a uh, three-part blog series, but I also did some videos on it and spoke to it that way. Uh, but one of the things he does in that book that's very concerning is he denies the doctrine of Actus Purus. In fact, he says as clear as day that Actus Purus is not the God of the Bible. He says that in the failure of natural theology. Um, all the while, he, he also uh, confesses the Second London Confession, right? And the, the, the problem here is that Johnson would give, Jeff would give us the, the, the impression that he confesses, that he believes what the Second London says and what it means, that he confesses it. Um, but, a, but upon a, a, an examination of his work and what he actually writes, that he, what he actually tells us he believes in, in, his, in his book, uh, we would we would find that he is actually incongruous uh, with the with the confession. That is to say that he is he has departed from several important points of the confession, um, and and rather than than clarifying some exceptions that he takes to the confession, he continues to affirm you know a a a, a belief in the confession to to outwardly and externally believe you know confess the the second London. And the problem that arises from that is, is not only confusion, uh, there is a great deal of confusion that's caused by something like that, um, but, but also uh, it, it gives way to, again, not discovering the original meaning of these words and instead loading these words with our own meaning, uh, our own meaning of you know, what we assume to be the meaning of these terms, meaning that has been developed uh, in recent years uh, that does not take into account the historical definitions. And so what we want to do is we, I, I pick on Jeff because <clears throat> he wrote at the popular level. So as a pastor, that concerns me. And I, he's not the only one that's done this. There have been several, uh, you know, at, at higher levels in academia that have done this as well. And at lower levels, John Frame, K. Scott Oliphant, and, and, and several have, have written things that have very negative implications uh, for what they say they confess in the Westminster in those two gentlemen's case. But um, but what we want to do here, um, what we want to do here is we want to get to the bottom of what these words actually mean. We don't want to to rip the original meaning out of them and, and then download our own meaning, you know, novel, innovative meaning into them. If we say we confess this document, we need to ask and answer the question, what are we confessing? But to but to answer that question, we have to understand the terms of the confession, and and we have to understand them according to their original meanings. Um, and so that's and and that's really for my part, and for the part of many, 
that's really the purpose of the work of retrieval. It, it's not to, it's not to just retrieve, you know, uh, uh, a popular figure here or a popular figure there, or or to make obscure figures in the Middle Ages or whatever popular, um, and, and to become followers of them or, or whatever. The purpose of retrieval uh, for those who confess the Second London is to really contextualize the language, the terminology that was really just in the air in the 17th century, but has, of course, fallen out of vogue in modern times following the Enlightenment. We want to rekindle these terms. We want to, we want to understand what we're confessing, and we want to, uh, we want to we want to employ these terms once more and we want to employ them to the glory of God according to their original meaning uh, with a certain rigor and honesty that would help those to whom we minister and teach. And so, um, and so I think it's very important just to ask the question, what do these words mean? If I don't know what they mean, then to ask the second question or the follow-on question, which is where can I find uh, where these, where the the meanings of these terms are are elucidated and further explicated, and I think that would would draw you personally, just in your personal study, would draw you into a a reading of Puritan literature, seventeenth century literature, literature that would really contextualize the uh, the dra- the sixteen seventy seven drafting of the of of the Second London, and also the sixteen eighty nine uh, General Assembly that adopted the Second London. It would help you to contextualize the language of the Westminster. It would help you to contextualize these technical terms and philosophical terms that are employed in service of theology in, in our confession of faith. And so all that to say that God is one simple act. There is no potential in him. He is actus purus. That is the God of the Bible. He does not change. Um, that's clear to us in Malachi 3.6. Deuteronomy 6.4, God is one. Uh, that has implications on our doctrine of simplicity and and immutability and elsewise and and so it, these are these are very important doctrines very foundational um and uh, these are doctrines that have never really been in dispute never really been in dispute throughout the life of the church and so we want what we want to do is we want to maintain we want to make sure that we are not de- we are not the ones deviating right we're not the ones deviating from the truth that has been given to us through the scriptures so God bless you guys. Hopefully that was useful. If it was, please share it. Give a thumbs up and and, uh, do not forget to subscribe to the channel.